Father God, we need you. We need you more than anything else in the world. And uh, my prayer this Sunday morning is that you would, your presence would fill this space, fill our hearts, fill our minds as we contemplate your words through David. As we lean into the reality of who you are in the Bible, that you would reveal yourselves to us, each person in this room. I'm asking this in confidence because I know that, that you can do it. And you will do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we are beginning a new series um, in what is historically <clears throat> one of the most um, cherished chapters in all of Scripture. Psalm 63. It's a short 11 verses, and it was written by King David when he was in the wilderness. And it is, when you read it, immediately clear how much this psalm meant to David personally in the language, what he sh- how he shaped it with his words and how he wrote it out. Uh, this song seems to flow from David's soul onto the pages. And like I said, it also has a little bit of history here. The early church used to read this every Sunday morning, um, and it was called the morning hymn. That's how popular this psalm was for the early church. John Chrysostom, which was one of the early church fathers, um, contended that the entire soul and spirit of the book of Psalms was contracted into this one psalm. And I agree with him. It's the center of the book. And there are a few reasons we're going to explore Psalms today. Um, The first is that I love this psalm. I'm going to be selfish here. This is my favorite psalm. I love this psalm. And uh, it was the first psalm that I ever, it was the first thing that I ever preached, text that I ever preached. Um, And I've been very eager to preach it again. And I've known for a while now that we were going to get to this psalm just because of it's the reality that's in this psalm is at the heart of what we are as a church. It's the heartbeat of risen hope. And so I I knew that we were going to get here. Um, But the main reason we're in this psalm is over the last few months in our church body and and people connected to this church body, there has been several very severe bouts of depression and anxiety and affliction in such a way emotionally that people have just been incapacitated. It's been a very difficult season for many people in our body. Not just a single case, not just one or two, several of them in in very bad, severe cases. So in the process of walking with some people and talking through some of the things that they were going through, um, God directed me into the arms of this psalm. And in its embrace, I felt encouraged on how to comfort people who were struggling with these things, who were suffering and may still be suffering from this dark cloud of depression. So whether you're there right now this morning, or whether you will be there in a month or two months, or whether this isn't a season that you've ever experienced before, but it might happen to you in the future at some point, my prayer is that God would use this. Um, And I think as you read the language, it'll become clear that he can use this in the heart of anyone, no matter what you're going through, or if you're not going through anything. Um, So you probably notice if you look at the chapter's heading, if you could turn to Psalm 63, 
The chapter heading in uh, Psalm 63 tells us the context and gives us sort of a, a kind of a, an understanding of where David was mentally and spiritually when he um, wrote this psalm. And the chapter heading should say something like, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And theologians, to be honest, don't know precisely when he wrote this psalm. It could have really been at any point that he was in the wilderness. But there are generally only two candidates that they land on. The first is when David was fleeing from King Saul throughout his younger years before he became king. And he was in the wilderness a lot of his life then. And the second one, which is more likely, most theologians agree that this is the right one, is that he wrote this psalm when he was fleeing into the wilderness because his son, Absalom, initiated an insurrection in his kingdom. Absalom had attempted to replace his father by subversively and ruthlessly leading a rebellion in Jerusalem and all of Israel that sent David and everyone who was with him outside of the city and into hiding. This happened late in David's uh, career or life as a king. And so most theologians believe this was the event. This extremely low, sorrowful moment in David's life was the event that became the canvas on which he would write Psalm 63. And before we we begin our journey through Psalm 63, what I'd like to do is take just a second, and I would like to read for you the context. You don't need to turn there. You can stay in 63. I want to paint for you a picture of why David would feel led to write a psalm like this at this point. And I want to, I want to try to invite us, me, myself included, into what he was feeling. What would it be like for David, for us to be him, and for his son to have abandoned him and betrayed him? Where was his heart and his soul when he was writing this psalm? 2 Samuel 15 is the setting. I'm going to read through a few verses in this chapter just to create a panorama of what was going on. Verse 13 says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. And so the king went out and all his household after him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. So let's try to get our hearts around this event. David was the hero of the people. He was the king and they loved him. They loved him. Yet, this event happened. His son 
hungry for his father's authority and power and throne and everything that it provided subverted his father's authority, turned the hearts of many in Israel toward him and quickly rose to power sufficiently for David to leave. And we get this, this event. This isn't an external threat. Think about this. This is not an external threat. This is not a a warring king from another land. This isn't even a competitor in Israel who's risen up and tried to take the throne from David. This is his son. His son. The little boy who David loved dearly, held in his arms, probably taught on his knee, and cared for, is now trying to kill him. He hates his father. And he wants his father's crown. And so this kind of devastation that we see here in the life of David, this devastation of the soul, is something that most of us don't even have a frame of reference for. No less will we ever experience it or taste it firsthand. Some of the things that Absalom does here are so abominable and wretched. I'm not going to go into detail, but it shows how wicked he really was. And it's clear that for David, this isn't just a logistical crisis. This isn't just an administrative crisis for a king. This is emotional. This betrayal cuts deep. It's his son. He loves his son. Even throughout all of this, he loves him. And this loss for David is is too great. It's too huge, too big for him to bear. And so he leaves. No one expected this. No one anticipated this to happen, least of all David, which is why the people in the land, when they're walking through, are weeping their eyes out. David crosses the brook of Kidron, and he ascends the Mount of Olives, and he is weeping like he's probably never wept before in his life. This event for David is unprecedented. And at some point in their journey, they reach the River Jordan, and they begin to hide there, outside of the reach, presumably, of Absalom. And David sits down, and he writes this song, Psalm 63. He actually writes more than one psalm here. Psalm 3, for example, just to give you a little bit of flavor of what he was writing during this time. Psalm 3 says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. This is a psalm we know was explicitly written when David fled from Absalom. And so here David in Psalm 3 is pleading for God to rescue him from his enemies because he knows that they're hunting him down. They're hunting him to kill him. And unless something changes, it is over for David. He will die at the hands of his own son. And so this is the backdrop for Psalm 63, which we'll get to in a second. Um, But as we go through this psalm in the next few weeks, the the, the kind of uh, flavor, the kind of uh, banner I, I would like to have in our minds as we go through this passage is what I think David was going through. And it is, how do I get back home? What is the way back home? That's what Psalm 63 is for David, the way back home. And I'm not just talking about a physical building. I'm not just talking about the city of Jerusalem. 
I'm talking about what is home for David? What does it mean to be at home? Because I believe what it is for David is what it is for every single one of us. And David is about to tell us what home is. He's about to show us what it is, and he's about to show us how it is when we are lost. How can we find our way back? And so I'm going to read through Psalm 63, verse 1 through 11, and then we'll just key in on the beginning of it. Here it is. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power in glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. That's Psalm 63. That is David's heart and soul laid bare in the middle of one of the darkest moments in his life, if not the darkest moment. And yet this psalm is not a psalm of lament. It's not a lament psalm. So many psalms that David writes, if you spend any time in the book of Psalms, you recognize are psalms of lament. They are when he offers up a grieving complaint to God and pleads with him to show up in a situation. Sometimes even ask, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me, God? And those psalms are good and right to sing. The th- a third of the book of Psalms itself, God's songbook for his people, are laments. They are songs pleading with God to show himself faithful in situations which seem absolutely hopeless. Yet Psalm 63 isn't exactly that. It's not a lament psalm. At whatever point in the wilderness David felt led to write this psalm, his main focus wasn't physical protection and it wasn't physical restoration. It was something entirely different. Let's look at verse 1 again. And this is really where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is more than the well-being of circumstance. It is more than the well-being of health. This is far more than a physical kind of protection or restoration. Though David 
will certainly pray for those when he needs to. This is a song and a prayer that is rooted in the longing of his soul for the living God. That's what's going on in this song. He wants God. And he will not leave his knees until he has him. And this psalm is about him trying to get back home. Home to David is more than Jerusalem. It's more than things being the way they were before Absalom's betrayal. David desires to go from the wilderness of his soul, a dry and weary land where there is no water, back to the fountain of living water to God. So listen to how he addresses God at the beginning here. He says, oh God, you are my God. Have you ever addressed God that way? Or an even more pointed question, have you ever even seen God in that way? So this is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. He isn't a tribal deity. In in, in David's mind, he isn't just the God of the people of Israel. Yahweh is his own God. It is a personal, intimate reality. This is my God. This is the language of a covenant, a relationship. It is the language that God makes with his people individually when he says, I will be your God, Abraham. David, I will be your God. I think we tend to generalize our relationship with God as though we were a small piece, puzzle piece, in the middle of this vast puzzle. And we do it, sometimes it's helpful to do that because we are a small fraction of the body of Christ. But sometimes we do it in a way that, that disenfranchises us from that intimacy we have with God. Like if God loses this little puzzle piece, you can still see the puzzle. He doesn't need me, and he doesn't need us. But we need to recognize the personal relationship that David has here, the intimacy, this fierce personal reality, that such if, if there was no people of God, David only alone in the world, he would still say, God, you are my God. You alone belong to me. I belong to you, and I am yours no matter if anyone else loves you or trusts you. I am yours. You are my God. This is David's posture in Psalm 63. He's seen the profound goodness of his God, and it is impossible for him to have another God. In fact, he isn't going to even split the difference with another God. This is his God. And the crazy thing about this opening verse is that we see right at once that David is homesick. Though God, this God, is his God, he cries out here, earnestly, I seek you. Why are you seeking him, David, if he's your God already? Why are you seeking him? David desires to be with God. God is home to David. But right now, He does not feel the presence of God. It's gone. The joy he had in God is gone. And when I say that, most of you probably know what I mean when I say that. There are times when you feel the joy of God in your life and you know that he is real, you know that his love is powerful, and that his promises, all of them, will be kept in time. 
But there are other times in your life when that is not the case. And he feels a million miles away. And that's where David is right here. That's where David is right here. Earnestly, he says, which in the Hebrew is translated early in the morning. Early, early, earnestly, he says, I seek you. I want to go back home, God. I want to go back home. I want you. I need you. I will do anything to get you back, is what he's saying. And I hope that you know, to some degree, why he feels that way. If you've ever tasted the goodness of God, you know what it's like to be in his presence, to feel his embrace, to feel his joy. And yet sometimes that goes, and we feel in those moments a deep and profound emptiness. We feel like we're abandoned. We feel like we're lost. And some of you might feel that way right now in this room. And it is excruciating. In fact, you may hear David's prayer, this first verse. And if this room was empty, you would weep those words after David because you have a kind of homesickness in you. You're like, I want to go back to what it felt like when I was in your embrace. And you would say through tears, God, I just want to be home. Earnestly, I seek you. You know what it feels like to seek God because you know what it means to not have him. It's the only way we would know what it feels like to seek God. Listen again to how much David desires to be with God. I'm going to read this verse one more time. Listen to his language. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David says, my soul thirsts. My flesh faints. And he envisions this place, this dry, barren desert of a wasteland, devoid of any water. And he says, that's what it feels like to be away from my God. Do you have a picture in your mind of a place where there's absolutely no water? And if God is water, that's what he feels like. He does not feel the joy of God in his life. He, feel, he is in a kind of desert wasteland of the soul where there is no water, and he is thirsty for God. This is, for David, a life or death situation, because without God, he has no doubt he will die at the hands of Absalom, but even worse than that, he cannot survive without being near God. He needs God there, and this theme of thirsting for God isn't localized in Psalm 63. It's really all over the scriptures. Jeremiah 2.13, for example, God refers to himself as the fountain of living water. And so the question for the rest of this psalm, as we go through it over the next few weeks, is going to be, how does David find God in this wasteland? How is his thirst for God quenched? Or more aptly, how does he find his way back home? How does he get back to not just Jerusalem, not just his throne, or any of that really, but to God. How does he get back to God? And for some of you, you may feel 
like this is the question you are facing in your life right now. Other people, you may feel, may, may feel that way tomorrow or uh, a week from now or a month from now or a year from now. One thing is certain, if David experienced this wasteland of the soul, a man who is said to be after God's own heart, all of us will at some point in our lives, if not multiple times, experience this at some point. Psalms, this psalm, was written in our Bibles so that we would know how to get back home. But what I want to focus on for the rest of our time is this word, seek. Earnestly, I seek you. I just want to look at that one word. This word is obviously at the heart of what this psalm means. It is the first step in David's journey back home. He says, earnestly, I seek you. This word seek isn't just pivotal to David. It's actually pivotal to every human being who's ever existed because humanity, all of mankind, was made explicitly to seek God. Look at Paul in Acts 17. Listen to what he says here. Acts 17, verse 26 through 27. <clears throat> Paul says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Paul says here, Mankind was created that they should seek God and that they should find Him. That's God's purpose in making humanity, not only making humanity, but making them this way and spreading them out all across the world, governing their boundaries, their periods. All of that happened that they should seek God and they should find Him. This is critical for us to see because it represents something that is at the most fundamental level of all humanity. We were made to do this. You know the most important thing about every person you've ever met. You lay eyes on a person, you may not know a thousand things about them, but you know the most important thing, the most vital thing, is that they were made to seek God. That's why they were created this is what we were made to do, yet the greatest tragedy in the world is that no one seeks God naturally. Romans 3 tells us this very thing. This is not a natural thing. We were given capacity to seek. We don't do it naturally. Listen to Romans 3. Paul says, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul says every human being, though they've been given the capacity to seek God, they have turned aside and they do not seek him. Together they have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. This is what it means like to be lost to not know your way back home. This is what it means. It is a kind of abdication of your God-given pursuit to know him and 
see him, the pursuit of your creator. Who made me? What is my purpose? And it's given to every human being, but it's all been thrown to the side, turned away from, and it is at the root of every evil and horror and atrocity, every small sin, every massive genocide. It is at the root of all of those things because we were made to know him and love him, and yet we don't. Naturally, we don't. And the interesting part about that statement in Paul in Romans 3 is that he's quoting somebody. Do you know who he's quoting? David. He's quoting David from Psalm 14, which was written by David. And the interesting thing about this is that we've got now two paradigms. Psalm 14 says, no one seeks God. And yet in Psalm 63, David is earnestly seeking God. So what's going on here? We already said that David is a man after God's heart. How can that be possible if Psalm 14 is true? Now, something must have happened in his heart to change the trajectory of his life. And that something whatever it is, didn't just launch David on a pursuit of God, but it is the very anchor that keeps him on his knees when his world is falling apart and causing him to cry out in the middle of the wilderness, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you when his life is spiraling out of control. It's the same thing. So whatever it is that caused David to seek God, is the same anchor that keeps him riveted to God when it seems like God's abandoned him. So how did this happen? How was David, how, how did the, the disposition of his soul to not seek God get completely changed so that he desired God? To answer that, I want to look at Acts 15 which is actually a paraphrase of an Old Testament passage for why Gentiles are doing exactly what David is doing. Suddenly, Gentiles are seeking God. And in this passage, we see the answer. Here it is, verse 16. After this, I, God, will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is God's word to the prophet Amos 750 years before Jesus Christ was born. And it's being used by one of the church leaders, James, as he's citing it as a reason for why Gentiles are miraculously seeking God. Why they're suddenly turning and, and wanting to know about Jesus and trusting in Jesus as their Savior. It says here that God was going to return one day and rebuild the tent of David. The tent, the family, the house, the line of David. And when he does this, a remnant of Gentiles will seek him. Now, the reason that this is so critical for us as we look at Psalm 63 is that the rebellion that was conducted by Absalom 
at this point in David's life, the very reason that David is writing Psalm 63 to begin with is the first sign of his tent collapsing. Same tent from Acts. If it was up here, I'd be pointing at a passage. It's not here anymore. <laughs> um, and this is the first indicator that the, the, the betrayal of Absalom and his revolt is the first indicator that this tent is going down. David's house is going to collapse. And the reason why is because of David's sin. Specifically, the sin he committed with Bathsheba, his adultery, and then him killing her husband, Uriah. That's the reason his tent falls. That's the reason his home and his line are leveled by God. Listen to this from 2 Samuel 12, 9 through 11. Nathan is talking on behalf of God to David. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And if I had time and we were studying through 2 Samuel, I would show you how explicitly how the ruin of David's tent because of his own sin manifested in Absalom's betrayal. What happened, what David did happens to David now because of this. But the main point of this passage is why is David's tent in ruin? Why is he ultimately desperate for God in the middle of the wilderness, desperate to find his way back home? And the reason is David's sin is what destroyed his house. That's why he is in the wilderness. And that's why we have Psalm 63, his own sin. That's why he was seeking God. And though we may or may not be at any given point in our lives, the cause of the wilderness we are going through, and I want you to hear that, you are not always the cause of the wilderness you are going through. Sometimes there's connection, sometimes there's not. Whether we may or may not be, the solution to David's wilderness is the same solution to ours, universally. And so here's the question, how in the world did God build up this tent? How did God build up David's tent as the prophet Amos foretold? And what does this have to do with David's ability and his desire and his capacity and his drive to seek God? We get a hint in Luke 1. Listen to this. You're going to know this passage. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is how he builds up the tent. John 17 would tell us that in the night where Jesus was betrayed, 
after celebrating Passover with his disciples, he would leave Jerusalem and cross the brook of Kidron. Luke 22 would tell us after crossing the brook of Kidron, he would ascend the Mount of Olives to find a garden there. And before being betrayed by one of his own closest friends, he would seek God. Do you see a parallel? Leaves Jerusalem, crosses Kidron, ascends the Mount of Olives on the night of his betrayal and seeks God unlike he has ever sought him before. Jesus Christ was following the footsteps of David. And it is only through Jesus and this act that David's tent is rebuilt. A tent that will never fall again. And to rebuild this this tent, Jesus would not run from his enemies. He would come to meet them. And he would receive a horrific punishment to pay for a world of sin that was not his own. And in paying for the full price of sin and exhausting the just wrath of God, Jesus not only rebuilds the temple or the tent of David, but he becomes a beacon of hope for everyone who trusts in him. And I don't just mean Gentiles. The same blood shed on that cross for the forgiveness of Gentiles in the early church is the same blood shed on that cross for forgiveness for David's sins his horrific sins. Romans 3.25 tells us this clearly, that God's promise of grace, like a fountainhead in the middle of human history, streams to both sides, New Testament and Old, such that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord and trusts in the provision of Jesus Christ receives this Jesus and can seek God like David is doing in Psalm 63. The cross that would pay for David's sins and free his heart from unbelief to be able to seek God so that when he was alone and weeping in the wilderness, his knees could hit hit the ground, his heart could cry out, oh God, where are you? Earnestly I seek you. You are my God. That's the same cross that frees our hearts. It's not a different cross. And what that means is that this gift isn't just for David alone. The gift to be able to seek God, to have a desire and a capacity to seek God is a gift for every single person who trusts in this God and his son, Jesus. This is for all of us. And I want, I want to show it to you in John 7. Listen to what Jesus says on the last day of the feast in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the promise of Christ. And he promised this to you, knowing that you would taste the wilderness one day. You would want the water. You would need the water. One of the glorious things about Psalm 63 is that it shows us, and this is an amazing thing, we don't th- I don't think we think about it in this way, that worship does not begin feasting at a table of God's delights, usually. It doesn't begin there. 
it begins in fainting in the wilderness. That's where worship begins. Fainting, thirsting, longing for him. And this is what the cross of Christ ignites in our hearts. An unquenchable desire to know him and a kind of dissatisfaction with all the other waters in the world that we could drink of. They're just not him. I have a thirst for him. And this is our first step on the way back home. This is what it looks like to long for and desire the living God. All of this a gift by the blood of Jesus. So in a few moments, we're going to be celebrating the cross through the act of communion. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you trust him, you are welcome to take the elements and remember him and worship. And what I would like to invite you this week to do is, as you take these elements today, commit yourself this week to seek him. If you're drifting, if you feel like you're drifting away from him, if you feel like you're not, but you could potentially drift away from him, or if you feel like you're great, or if you feel right now completely lost and you're not only unable to seek home, you can't even see or remember what it was like. Commit this week, every day this week, every morning, every evening, and throughout the day to say to God, God, you are my God. You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary weary, uh, land. David, the sinner, could only seek God because of Christ, the sinless, who purchased with his own blood every ounce of strength, every ounce of desire that David would need to pray Psalm 63. And that means that this promise that Jesus gave isn't just for David, it is for every single one of us. It's for you, it's for me, and that's why Psalm 63 is in this book, so that we can do exactly what David did. We can seek God and find our way back home. God wants you home. He wants you home. And the wilderness exists so that you would want to be home too. That's why it's there. So that you would want him and see him as the treasure that he is. Christ did not die for us to stay lost in the wilderness. He didn't die so that our homesickness would crush us. He died so that he could obliterate our homesickness and bring us all the way home to him. And so I'm pleading with you, with all the might you can muster this week, with all the strength, with all, whatever you need to do to do it every day, cry out to him as though your life depended on it. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you and seek him. And I promise you, if you do that earnestly, if you do that sincerely, if you reach for him with every breath you've got, he will meet you where you are. I guarantee it. I promise that. He will meet you. He met David and he will meet you because God is faithful and he will bring you home. It may not be an easy process. It may not be a straight and clear process. It will happen. I guarantee you it will happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Psalm 63 is such a massive central 
critical part of human existence, what it means to be a human. We were made to seek you. We were made to find you, and we were made to enjoy you as our God. And the greatest need of our soul right now is to feel that need and to not try to fill up that need with other things that cannot satisfy and that will continue to leave us empty day after day after day. Father, put in our hearts, put in everyone's heart in this room, our entire church's heart, Father God, and the people that we're connected to, a passion, an insatiable passion to seek you every day of our lives, to hear your voice, to trust you, to pursue you, to be obedient to what you've called us to, and to love you and enjoy you as our highest treasure such that there isn't anything in this world that could take our gaze off of you. Nothing could happen to us in this world that could overwhelm us to the point where we see something greater than you or fall away, Father, because we see you as you rightly are. I ask for that in the name of Jesus Christ, and we're trusting in you today for you to come and do that as we worship. In the name of Jesus, amen.